Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hey, everybody. It's been a while. It has almost been a full month since I launched, uh, since I released the last podcast episode, which is pretty crazy and might be the longest I've gone. And uh, I appreciate that no one came uh, to like shame me <laughs> for not releasing. Um, I, I've been doing like a week every week. And uh, yeah, this so much has happened this past month. Um, and I talk about this a lot, but I feel that it's important to mention again. Um, I was actually just talking to a couple of friends of mine who are planning to launch a YouTube channel and a podcast, and they wanted to sort of check in with me and get some advice and specifically about, you know, mistakes that I made uh, to sort of warn them against or just like lessons I've learned in the year that I've been doing this. And one of my intentions in starting this project was that I wanted it to be very different from other types of projects that I did in the past. So I was always a perfectionist. I always um, was really hard on myself about putting out perfect work, um, either for myself or the person I was working for. And I went above and beyond at all times. And unsurprisingly, I got really burnt out and angry and resentful and it didn't work. And I think that... Um, sort of grandiosity, which is a term that I've mentioned before um, by Alice Miller, who wrote Drama of the Gifted Child, that like my grandiosity in that sense, my perfectionism, my striving to put out, you know, stellar quality, whatever it was, was like my version of depression. It was my version of avoiding imperfection, my vo avoidance of um, authenticity and of just myself in general. And it killed me in many ways. Um, I got, I mean, physically and emotionally, like I just died. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm a very creative person and I'm a very outgoing person. I'm a very motivated and passionate person. And so my desire to create stuff, um, wasn't going to go away, but I know that I knew that if I wanted to continue doing stuff like that, that I'd have to do it in a different way. Um, and so when I created this podcast, it was kind of like the first real professional project that I developed post my 
dark night of the soul. Uh, and I was very, very intentional about the type of project that I wanted to create. And, um, I wanted to use it actually as a way to get over a lot of those negative qualities that I had prior. So, okay, I'm going to put out this podcast and like my website's still not finished and that's cool. I'm just going to deal with it. It's a year. My website's still not finished. I have like a half baked website up on the internet, which definitely like freaks me out and doesn't make me feel good, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, and I knew that I was going to try and put it out, the podcast out every week, but that inevitably shit would come up and it wouldn't happen. And I knew that I'd be spending a lot of time on something that wouldn't be making a lot of money. And I wanted to just use it as something like I'm going to put something out into the world that's totally authentic and real. And um, that's going to mean that sometimes I fuck it up. And that's going to mean sometimes... Like, I'm not going to set any attention, uh, intentions around its success, right? Or even, like, I didn't... When I set out to do it, I just thought, I just want to do this because this feels right. This isn't about money I'm making. This isn't about people who are listening. This isn't about any of that. If any of that stuff's going to happen, it's going hap to happen in a natural way, not in a forced way. So it's it was interesting to sort of, like, use a project... Um, to get over a lot of negative traits that came out in the realm of projects like this in the past. Um, and anyway, when I was talking to these friends and they asked me about my advice, you know, that was my advice to them as well. And it made me feel really good actually that I'd sort of stuck to my guns about it, you know, that, if I wasn't feeling it, I wasn't going to sit down and record. I wasn't going to force it. If I was overwhelmed, I wasn't going to force it. If I felt like it was stressing me out more than it was bringing me joy, I wasn't going to do it. And I really haven't. And and not to say that that's been easy. I mean, every week that goes by that I'm like, oh my God, fuck, it's another week. I haven't put out a podcast. And I have these like wonderful people that are there wanting this content for me. And of course, all these thoughts in my mind go of like, I'm failing them. And like, you're supposed to be consistent. And, um, you know, fuck all of that. Uh, I want, if anything, you guys to feel like you're hearing from and listening to someone that is real and that is imperfect. Um, I don't at all want to project a false image of myself anymore. Um, and so in some weird way, I hope my like fuck ups and laziness and imperfections are more motivating to you than if I were like insanely neurotic about the perfection or consistency of the podcast. Um, and not only that, but like, there's so much going on, right? I got back from the trip. We were gone for five months on the road. So the transition of coming back home, which is a weird thing to say, um, definitely a topic I've mentioned before that I want to talk about, just like the notion of home. But coming home is weird. Like, okay, so I was gone for half the year. So like, what is home? But anyway, regardless, it was a transition going from living on the road and moving around nearly every day to coming back to a place. Um, granted, I left for New York the day after we got back um, and I've been going to be traveling quite a bit in October. 
and uh, then only going to be in L.A. for like a couple months, um, going to spend the winter elsewhere. And then uh, more big news is that I'm actually going to be moving to Colorado, which is uh, really exciting um, and profound in many ways. And uh, when I started this podcast, I also thought I was moving to Colorado, but in a different context. I was going to move to Colorado to try and sort of like manifest and create um, a project that I'm now just sort of heading straight into. So there's no like initiatory move. It's just like the move. <laughs> um, so anyway, bought some land in Colorado and uh, I, I, this idea has morphed um, quite a bit over time and I'm not going to get into all of the details of it now, but Basically, the long and short is that I will have a place where I feel like I'm a part of a community that uh, mirrors my inner self and, um, you know, vice versa, a place where I don't feel like an outsider um, and where I can hopefully invite other people to not feel like outsiders either and just really generate a more communal way of living Um so I will absolutely be talking about all of that more, but, uh, yeah, the big news is that I'm officially going to be going there and have that as a home base. And given the details of the, um, the project, the land, whatever, um, it will also sort of afford me the opportunity to continue to travel because I won't be in crazy debt. Um, and, uh, we'll have some land and a home that's paid for and we can have people stay there and we can leave when we want, but also have a home base that feels good and secure and authentic. Um, so anyway, so much like that was going on coming home from the trip, sort of the land was bought just really in the last couple weeks of the trip. So having that all sink in, I went back to my hometown actually for my friend's wedding uh, a day after we got back. And, um, that was honestly more, uh, traumatic than I expected it to be. And I, and I don't necessarily mean trauma in a bad way. Um, is, can trauma be not bad? I think so. At least that's what it felt like, you know, traumatic in the sense of like earthquakey in the sense of this isn't what I expected it to be. Um, I have talked a lot before about how, um, when I got divorced a few years ago, I ended up moving back in with my mom and that was a really profound experience in the sense that like I was experiencing a lot of the same themes and emotions and relational dynamics that I did when I was a kid and, but now I was a lot older and so I had a lot more experience and context and language to, uh, um, like put into the situation in order for me to understand it better. So when I was a kid, it was just like, I have this bad feeling. And then as an adult, it's like, I have this bad feeling. And now I understand what this is. I understand where it's coming from. I understand why I feel like this. I have words and I have context and I have experience. And so going back home to my hometown, the last time I did this was for my high school reunion, which was literally a week before I decided I wanted a divorce. And so I, uh, Last time this happened, I think I went back home into that context and realized, like, had the perspective to recognize that I was not living the life I wanted to lead. I 
realized within the context of all of these high school people that like I had not spent the past 10 years doing what I wish I had been doing. And I think it was totally subconscious, but I think that provoked a lot of my decisions and blowing up my life and starting again from scratch. Um, and so this time was interesting because in the past few years, I did start from scratch, sort of went back to square one and rebuilt. And so it was a very interesting sort of completion of a cycle in many ways of like, okay, now you're going back as the person that you want to be. And, um, sort of like a, how well did you do kind of a thing? Um, and the answer was pretty fucking well. Like I'm, I'm shocked at how much transformation occurred in that period of time. Um, and it gave me a lot of sort of gratitude and respect for myself and my own bravery and courage that I was able to do all of that and somehow still be standing on the other side because in the moment it felt horrific. Um, but anyway, I sort of expected to go back and it would be like this amazing celebration and I'd be feeling really good about myself and have no insecurities. And that isn't what happened. Uh, I definitely had a situation where I feel like I got super cocky about my growth and evolution and um, the universe was like, oh, oh, you, you're feeling cocky right now. Okay, uh, hold my beer. Hold on. Um, so lots of different things happened that really triggered a lot of like remaining insecurities and fear and vulnerability that I think I was very quick to dismiss as no longer present. Um uh, but it was, it was fascinating because going back in the sense was like very similar, I think, to moving back home, but like the going back and hanging out with all your high school friends kind of a thing. And these are especially my sort of close group of friends. Like, I really love these women. I really respect them. We've all come really far. We've gone through phases of, you know, not being super close and then being close again and just sort of, you know, especially over the past few years, we've all been through so much transformation. And I think we all have a really authentic respect for everyone's unique journey. But regardless, going back there and being in that environment, um, which was much more cohesive than the reunion, which was just like, I went to the town and went to a bar and then left. This was like, I was staying in my friend's parents' house and seeing all my friend's parents and driving around all the streets and by my high school and um, it was a lot more comprehensive in terms of reminding me of what being a kid was like. And I totally went back to all of those places. Like I had a really, my childhood was hard in the sense, um, subjectively hard in the sense that I felt so different and I felt wrong. Like I just felt like, I don't belong here and I don't really know why, but I think everyone else kind of recognizes that too. And there's a lot of weird shame and judgment and, uh, not just from my friends and peers, but even from parents, just sort of like subtle judgments or, um, yeah, comments, <laughs> all of these different things that I think as a kid, I heard and felt only on a very surface level and going back was like, oh, wow, okay, that's why I felt like this. Like, that's why I felt like such an outsider. I understand myself so much more now in terms of where I came from and the trauma that happened back then and um, 
it was a really fascinating experience and, um, meaningful, I think to me and a lot of my friends, I mean, some people who I haven't talked to since we were in high school, um, and to sort of see the transition of people. These are not conversations I had at the reunion for whatever reason, but it happened this time. And, you know, it also really kind of put me in my place around judgments that I'd made about other people. Um, and, judging other people for what I saw as a lack of growth, but for what I now realize was exactly the choices they needed to make and exactly the choices. I mean, I hate the word should, but like they lived their life exactly the way it should have been lived because those are the choices they made. There's no reason to force anybody to do anything differently than what they're doing. And, um, there was just a, a, a big sense of calm I think with all of us kind of realizing like we've settled, uh, not that there won't still be movement, but like we've settled into ourselves in such an interestingly complex and beautiful way. Um, but it was definitely also sort of a kick in the ass, um, as I think is important to experience, especially when you get to the place where you think like, if when I get here, everything will be fine. And I, my dad always used to warn me about that. Like, don't do that because it's fake and because you're just going to be disappointed. And that's definitely, um, how I felt in this situation. And, uh, I think that actually factors into today's discussion a little bit as well. This is a conversation with Dylan Bandy. Uh, Dylan is actually the daughter slash child. We talk a lot about, um, gender and pronouns in this. <laughs> um, and, uh, so child of, uh, Sonia Leia, who was on the podcast, um, a little while ago, uh, we talked about, um, a book she wrote, uh, several years back about her husband, um, suffering a traumatic brain injury and losing all of his memory. Uh, and we had a really fascinating conversation about identity and authenticity and how that's sort of constructed within ourselves and externally and how it, uh, this experience not only was his identity transformed, but sort of gave her an opportunity to look at her experience as well. And, um, in her book, she talks a lot about, uh, sex. And, um, so we talked a lot about sex, obviously, because I love talking about sex. Um, but she is, uh, 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 Dylan, she was like, you have to have Dylan on the podcast. Um, podcast, uh, Dylan is similar, uh, in a similar age to you and is interested in a lot of the same things. And they have a podcast together called bitch Conoclast, uh, where they talk about like sex and gender and feminism and power. Um, but from this like fascinating cross generational perspective, which I really appreciate. I, um, have always found it really interesting the ways that I kind of relate to my parents about these topics. Oftentimes I think actually more than people my own age. Um, but I think it's really important in deconstructing any sort of complex idea to look at it from multiple perspectives. And I think, um, culture is definitely one of those, but I think generationally is another way that we can, uh, deconstruct things in a, comprehensive way. Um, so I had Dylan on the show and, um, the reason I feel like this relates to what I was just talking about was, uh, because I think, um, I mean, Dylan and I, 
I don't feel like disagreed necessarily about things. Uh, but I do think like we, we come at, we came at things from different perspectives, um, and have different life experiences. And I, um, it's really important to me to have conversations on this podcast that are not just like me talking to someone who is exactly the same type of person that I am making the exact same types of, uh, decisions, because what I really would like to showcase on this podcast is the importance of complex, nuanced conversation. Um, and so regardless, I do still have, I think, a lot of people on who I find, you know, interesting, which is going to create a sort of like selfish, insular, insular, uh, <laughs> um, sort of one note view on a thing. Uh, and so I sort of appreciated that Dylan and I had just like complex, uh, thoughts on these issues. Um, and I think that's important. I mean, I, I just recently had a conversation out at dinner with people about Aziz Ansari, which I have very, um, sort of stubborn opinions about, which I won't get into right now. Um, but I'm definitely super fucking stubborn and impatient and passionate and like, I don't feel like my version of the story is heard very much. And so I think I have a very sort of like childish, immature desire to be like, well, this is what I think. Um, and I think sometimes I can come across as a little aggressive and like not super conducive to a conversation. Um, so I like when people are sort of willing to go there with me and be like, well, what about this? And what about that? And I'm not going to just say like, I'm offended. I don't want to talk to you anymore, but really engage with me. And I feel like Dylan and I had just like the most comfortable conversation that anybody could possibly have about this stuff. And I love talking about these things and I want other people to be more comfortable talking about these things and recognize that, um, the whole point of this is to have conversations in which we're sort of challenged in a way, just like I was challenged when I went home to my hometown, um, you know, to be able to be both passionate, but also open to hearing something in a new way or seeing something in a new way is really fucking important. Um, I don't know how we get anywhere if we don't, uh, question, and reflect on our own sort of like biases and experience. So I think that's all I have to say before I, uh, start the interview. I, um, was going to record a solo show this week and I think that's actually this week. I was going to record a solo show as a follow-up to the last episode, which I posted a month ago. Um, and I think that's actually part of why there was such procrastination on my part of releasing anything at all. Um, I was going to sort of do what I normally do, which was to take a bunch of questions that you all have always sent me and answer them and talk about a few different things. And what I decided I actually wanted to do was to just dedicate an entire episode to talking about my journey with my own health, um, both physical and emotional, which, um, they tie into each other very, very, um, severely. That's sort of the point of the whole episode, actually, is to sort of discuss the emotional route uh, and um, all of the ways in which I've kind of discovered the tie between our mind and our bodies and um, 
I think I just sort of avoided it because, um, it's a really hard thing to talk about. And because it's hard just in the vulnerability sense, but it's also hard because I think people find it threatening, especially those who are also struggling with health issues. And the last thing I want to do is like project my own experience onto every other person's experience. But I do feel like this side of the story really needs to be told. And I've certainly alluded to it in multiple episodes and I've had people on such as the episode I, I put out, uh, last time with, um, Steph, the last episode I released, um, that talks about this, but I just feel like it's time to fucking come clean and tell the whole story from, uh, start to finish. Um, so I'm still going to do that. I'm going to do it next week, but I figured, um, I just really wanted to get something out to you guys. So in the meantime, I had this episode with Dylan, all queued up and ready to go. So we're going to do this one first. And plus we talked about health last time. So we're going to take a break and talk about like sex and power and uh, gender again, mix it up. And then next week I'll be back and I'll do that episode. Um, and then we will be back to our regular scheduled programming, hopefully. Um, so that is all for now. I will let you listen to this conversation with, uh, Dylan. If you'd like to support the show, please just tell your friends. Um, if you're holding your phone in your hand right now, or you happen to be in front of a computer, the other really helpful thing to do is to leave some stars and a review on iTunes. Um, that helps in so many different ways. It helps it show up more in search result results. It helps when I inter when I reach out to someone, um, cold and want them to be on the podcast. And that's going to inevitably be the first thing they look at, which is how many people have listened to this show. Like how many reviews does this person have? Do they have bad, uh, ratings or good ratings? Um, and so really, you guys leaving me a review or subs hitting subscribe or leaving some stars actually uh, benefits you because <laughs> it means more people take me seriously and I have better guests on the show. Um, so that's what I'd recommend. You can also, um, if you have the capacity to donate a little bit of money on Patreon, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Anya Cates. And I think that's it. Um, Thank you guys for uh, continuing to support the show and me, and I fucking love every bit of it. Talk to you on the other side. All right. I am here with Dylan, who um, your mom is a big fan of yours, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> when I uh, went to uh, interview Sonia, one of the first things she says was like, you should have my daughter on too. It sounds like you guys are very familiar, uh, similar. So I'm really happy <laughs> to have you on. And I think it's the, yeah, the first time I've yeah. had a mom and a daughter on the show. Um, Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I'd love it if you, I mean, I knew a bit about you, but instead of me like rattling off your bio, I'd love for you to sort of in your own words, um, tell the listeners like who you are and um, what you're into, and then we can kind of take it from there, if that's cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am a videographer and photographer. I also describe myself as a filmmaker. Um, I've made two short films. Um, I am kind of working on a feature. Um, I got my first degree in music. Um, so I spent many years as an opera singer, um, and moved to Europe and did like weird experimental opera, like music theater in Germany. Um, and then transitioned into film, um, 
I don't know. I, I started in photography when I was uh, in high school um, and was very into stage and would always like direct my own stuff with my friends. Um, film just seemed like a natural way to be able to create something that had a, a little bit of a wider reach than live arts have. Um, for better or worse. And I also really enjoy the ways that media has um, kind of blown up in the, I don't know, it's also a good way to make money. It's a good way to make money in like the corporate world. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, and what, how, how did you get into opera? Oh, man. Um, I love singing. I think yeah. it all stemmed from that. I started in like a children's choir and I wanted to do musical theater. But then my voice teachers were leading me more towards classical singing. Um, and I think the thing I really loved about it was like it took you to this place where you can be much, much larger than yourself. Both like the sound that you're creating is massive. And also like the traditional operas give you all of these ways to be like super melodramatic, which was very in tune with who I was as a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Same. Love <laughs> the melodrama. Yeah. Yeah. And in the like transition, do you feel like any of that was like, do you still perform or do you feel like any of that transition was like trying to express yourself in that creative realm without like being on stage? I, I also like thought I was going to be an actress for basically my entire adolescence. And then, in college at some point decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, but I think a lot about like what of that, that sort of performative uh, thing was like really integral to myself and how that's shifted. Do you see that for you as well? Yeah, I think um, more than anything, I love creative control. Um, and that is what led me to like write, direct, produce, uh, edit mm. all of those things. Um but the performer is still like in there. Um, I was in a band until fairly recently. Um, we just moved to different cities and we'll still like collaborate on stuff, but it feels like we're at a little bit of a pause. Um, but I would love to be in a band again. Um, when I go up and do like karaoke, like my friends get pissed off. They're like, you can't do karaoke because you can sing professionally. They're like, well, I'm also allowed to like, enjoy myself here yeah don't get mad <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally um and you have a podcast with your mom I do yeah, yeah. we're working on a second season um bitch conoclast is pretty rad uh recently we like just interviewed a bunch of pacific northwest authors um in our last season and uh we're talking about kind of who we would bring on as guests for another season, but I would love to move away from uh, writers and do all sorts of uh, people in the arts. Cool. How, yeah. how did you guys decide to start that together? What was that process like? We actually tried to do several different projects together before that, that had kind of like crashed and failed. Um, just because there wasn't a good way for us to balance um, each of our quite strong voices. Mm -hmm. um, like we tried to write something together that was going to be like a one woman show, but then like that was ended up like being my project. And I think she, she brought me on to act in her film and do music for that, which was awesome. Um, it was a great opportunity for me. Um, 
but we hadn't quite found a way for each of us to have like an equilibrium of uh, power, which is also challenging and like a parent child dynamic always. Um, so I think creating the podcast was a way to have a conversation around power and um, more or less just like expose the form in addition to like getting the thing done. I don't right. know. It, it just seemed really ex- executable. Executable. That's a word. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Podcasts are super executable for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And was it like you guys focus on power, sexuality, uh, feminism and were, feminism? Yeah. Yeah. Were those like, do you feel like you have a unique relationship with your mom, which is why you kind of focused in those areas? Are those just topics that you both are interested in? Was that kind of organic or how did you decide like that's what you guys wanted to? I think the tagline kind of came after the podcast, if Mm. that makes sense. Um, We definitely had things that we were interested in focusing on before going in. Um, And I think there is an innate quality to each of us inherently. Although like it's hard for me to separate the things that are inherent to me and the things that are learned from her um, because I am her child and we have been close for so many years. Um, That being said, I think uh, so for example, each of us wrote a short uh, script for a film that each of us made and the first scene, although it's often done as a first scene, in anything, the first scenes of each of our scripts were like unfulfilling sex scenes. Um, so like, I think there is a quality to each of us where, uh, sex is definitely one of the taboos that we insist on bringing up over and over again, um, in each of our work individually. Um, I would say between us, I don't know if people think listening to the podcast that she and I are just like constantly talking about sex. I try to not talk with my mom about sex for the most part. I'll kind of deal with the general idea of sexuality in our culture, but I'm not trying to like find out what her sex life is like. You know what I mean? Totally. (laughs) Yeah. I I, uh, I talked to my, my dad's gay. So I like had a very, I think unique relationship with a father, I guess. Um, especially in terms of talking about sexuality pretty openly um, but yeah, same. We talk about sexuality a lot, but I like don't really want to know the intimate details of his <laughs> sex life. Um, but right. I think it's, I think it's important. I, I recorded a podcast episode with my dad actually. And part of it was like, just sort of wanting to highlight the types of conversations I think that could be had between parents and children around these topics that I imagine you feel similarly, like just don't happen in so many different in like for the majority of people. Yeah. Well, I think living in New York, which I I currently live in Brooklyn. Um, a lot of my friends are quite estranged from their parents in general. Um, so inherently my relationship with my mother, the fact that I have like a good relationship is unique, much less the fact that we can talk about sexuality or feminism or share similar ish political beliefs. Yeah. Why do you think that is the estrangement? 
Um, well, I think people are drawn to New York because of what it offers in regards to like anonymity and creating your own family and um, kind of uh, a certain amount of sophistication comes with like the idea of New York. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I think that would be something that each individual would have to answer them for themselves. Um, or maybe we're just like in a generation where people don't relate to their parents as much, but it's definitely something I noticed that's different from, for example, when I lived in Chicago, people seemed a lot more attached to their families. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was asking that because I was wondering if it was a generational thing. I definitely feel like I know a lot of people that are at least like questioning it or looking at it critically, the relationship they have to their parents, whether or not they're estranged, but sort of like, Oh, what did I, (laughs) what did I inherit? Like, what did I not want to inherit? And all of that sort of like ancestral thing that I think our generation is, I think, thankfully looking at more so than previous generations. And I think a certain amount of mobility, um, for better, for worse has allowed us to, distance ourselves um from our paternal and grandparent kind of those generations yeah certainly inside of like you know white culture but i know a bunch of people who like still live with their grandparents you know like as 30 somethings they're like i'm still living at home i'm like figuring out my long-term business plan like that's rad yeah i don't i can't relate my grandparents are dead. Yeah. Same. Well, some of them aren't, but I'm not going to live yeah. with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I love like what I think is super cool about your podcast with your mom and something I've noticed uh, with my relationship with my mom, which is a bit estranged, but one topic that we interestingly agreed upon a lot was this concept of like feminism and sex and power. I always felt like, I don't know if it was just like, she is super open-minded or I'm, I'm just not fitting in with the uh, conventional narrative around these things of my generation. Do you feel like you have that as well? Are there, I know I, I listened to one podcast episode where you were talking about, you know, these different, versions of feminism and I've I've always struggled calling myself a feminist because not because I don't feel like that but because I always feel like I need to clarify what that means in my case um do you feel like those especially uh, like looking at feminism uh like cross-generationally have you found some of those sort of common threads between you and your mom yeah I definitely feel like when I uh, say that I'm a feminist. It's always like, who is the audience to whom I am making that declaration? Um, and then like, to what extent do I need to clarify that? But recently, uh, I work at restaurants as well. And, um, there were these like day hire cooks that were talking about how a, uh, they were on the train and there was a woman whose nipples were hard and they were looking at them um, and she was with her boyfriend or like they were with their partner. Um, and they were saying that the boyfriend can't get mad 
for them staring at the girl's nipples. And I was like, what are you even talking about? It's like calling them out on this bullshit. Um, and then I said, blah, 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 called them out. And then I was like, I'm a feminist. And he's like, well, you're a feminist. And I was like, girl, do not even treat me like that is a bad word. I can't with you right now. Um, so there's definitely, uh, a quality of sometimes like needing to like stake a, a little plot of land for feminism, you know? Um, and the, and the continued evolution of that terminology, but I definitely think feminism is for any gender. I definitely think feminism is also beneficial to everyone. Um, I don't think it's exclusive to like women's rights. Um, yeah. Um, and I do think on like reading old literature, say like women who run with the wolves, I feel like is a seminal feminist text. (laughs) Um, there is a lot of like man hating specifically in that kind of second wave feminist text, um, that I no longer, like, I have to like reframe it in my head every time I read it, you know? Yeah, that that's definitely one of the pieces that, well, how do you define it? Like if you were, if you had to define your version of feminism, what would that be? Um, I like to think of feminism as definitely something that is uh, malleable, but uh, I like to think of it also in regards to policy. So like equal pay. Um, Let's just like start with some basics. Um, pay equity, um, equity and representation in media. Um, I mean, these are pet issues for me. Um, but I think, I think we're looking at feminism as like gender equity, um, as well as like the prevalence of misogyny globally. Um, and that's against, Femmes, in addition to females, in addition to, uh, I mean, a lot of my queer politics definitely get umbrellaed under feminism. Um, yeah. Does that answer that question? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I feel like it's been co opted by a lot of things that I, like the man hating thing, especially, is really tough for me. And again, I think that probably, like, I get it. I, I feel like, there are so many women in the world who have been treated so poorly by men raised super poorly by men. So I recognize that sort of animosity, but I maybe just because of the way that I was raised having this, like what I think was close, healthy relationship to the masculine in general, that it frustrates me. And I, and I think like, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, like how the man hating thing like funnels and permeates into this understanding of masculinity in general. Well, toxic masculinity is real. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, (laughs) So like if I don't necessarily hate men, I do hate toxic masculinity. Um, I hate rape culture. I hate, uh, you know, and hate, I guess is probably inherently like a, a bad word to use. Um, but I think we're talking about a behavior that anybody can exhibit. So like bell hooks says what patriarchy has no gender. Yeah. I, I think, uh, t- 
toxic masculinity is real and it's also like permeated aspects of even feminist culture. Like, I don't know. Totally. (laughs) Turfs like trans exclusionary radical feminists. Like, what is that about? I can't get down. Yeah. Or swerfs sex work, exclusionary radical feminists. I have no patience for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I feel like at the same time that there's this sort of, I mean, I agree. Toxic masculinity is definitely real. And I think what people struggle with, like I, I, a couple a year or so ago, I like posed a question on Instagram asking people to name positive masculine traits or positive traits that they saw as masculine. Um, but specifically thinking about them embodied in someone who identifies as male, let's say, versus female. So like mm-hmm. if a woman is, you know, powerful or aggressive, it's okay. But if a man is, <laughs> it's not okay. And it was mm-hmm. fascinating to me that basically nobody could answer the question that like toxic masculinity has become the prevailing understanding of masculinity and people like people literally said nothing. Like I can't think or name any, mm. um, that was super yeah. troubling. Well, I think there's an interesting place also that we go to with the terms masculinity and femininity. I think there's a way that that terminology is born out of our ideas of gender roles. And I don't know that it's super separable from that, but like if I'm, um, femme, like, what does that mean? Does it mean I have long nails? Does it mean I have tits? Does it mean I have, like, uh, that I like to wear lipstick or lip gloss or mascara or whatever? Like, what are these traits that we put onto the terminology? And what of that has come out of, like, defining that historically or retroactively? Um, and in what ways are even the, the terms kind of getting in our way of perhaps um, like, do you imagine a future where gender is not the way that we define ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. I I think like where I feel like I have been thinking about it recently is like, definitely like, I, I think energetically that there's like this feminine and masculine polarity. There's someone that I really enjoy it, a psychologist and he's an astrologer that he's like, what if we just talked about it in terms of like night and day, like day being masculine and night being feminine <laughs> and like remove the gendered terminology entirely. So like energetically, I feel like there's this binary, I'm like air quoting. <laughs> um, but so, so, and I, I truly believe that. And I feel like I embody both of those things. I like see those things clearly in myself and in other people and in just the world in general, the planet. But I think like the problem to me is that we have these really limited definitions of where mm-hmm. masculine and feminine become like male, female. And I, I always, cause I think about words all the time, like one of the most defining moments for me was my dad was gay and I didn't find out until I was 10, but my parents got divorced when I was five. So I saw my dad like kissing and living with and sleeping with a man, but I never even thought about it in any sort of terminology. It was just like, it was right. And then I found out that 
he was gay through a series of events. Basically, my parents decided to tell me when I asked. And I was like, oh, like this was the early mid 90s. And I was like, oh, okay, so he's gay. I hear that gay is bad, but my dad's not bad. So what the fuck is up with that word that it like, right? Um, so I wonder like if our definitions of female, male, masculine, feminine were broader or even like up to complete personal interpretation, what might that look like nowadays in terms of like, let's say people getting gender reassignment surgery or identifying as non-binary? Like, is it the words or is it, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Um, I think so. Um, I think there's also violence in fear, mm -hmm. Um, whether it's around the term gay or it's around somebody who's like presenting somewhere between femme and mask i think there is uh a lot of violence that that person can incur on the street um yeah. whether that's like physical violence or verbal violence or just like the way somebody gets looked at or thought about um when they're maybe presenting not inside of gender conformity um and so I think there is a lot of unfucking that we have to do as a society still, um, yeah. whether or not, I mean, I, I think the terminology does help us find ways to communicate around that. Um, but I think there is a hindrance sometimes to, to needing to define, um, no, I can't say that explicitly. I don't know. I'm just going to say, I don't know. That's <laughs> a good answer. Yeah. I, I, I think we as humans have a natural tendency, tendency to, I mean, it's why I think I started this podcast and what I was sort of seeking when I was going through a hard time was like wanting to find community with like-minded people, like wanting to fit into something. So even when we uh, remove ourselves from the conventional let's say labels or groups or boxes, like I still think there's this tendency to like form another one, whether we consciously are doing that or not. Mm. I mean, there is something important to claiming an identity as well. Even if that identity is like gender fluidity, it's like I'm claiming that I am gender fluid or I'm claiming that I am like it's a, it's a coming out process. It's a way of saying I exist in the world and you can't like silence that. And I think that complexity can be difficult to grasp for certain people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd love to, you had mentioned something that I talk about a lot and think about a lot in terms of like, uh, how I think there's this push or has been a push that like in order to be a powerful woman or a powerful femme or feminine person, however we want to say it, that we have to embody masculine qualities <laughs> and like, mm. and, and I, I've struggled with this so much because I, uh, for my whole life was always like super in touch with my masculinity. I feel like, and I, always was like hanging out with the boys and felt like I could relate to them better. And I would always joke that I talk about sex like a guy. Uh, 
And that was like, I felt really, really good about that. And then recently I started to think about how like, uh, was some of, was some of that me trying to like find my power in those traits and realizing that a lot of feminine traits, I was, um, like I wasn't as approving of like, like my desire to be in relationship or community or like trusting and relinquishing control. I, I, I had this like kind of scary epiphany that all the masculine traits I was like super cool with and proud of. And the feminine stuff, I was like, Oh, you should be stronger and like more self-reliant and be on your own. Uh, I'm curious to hear if you've had <laughs> some of those thoughts. I mean, I'm working it out on therapy. Just kidding. I can't <laughs> afford therapy. Um, so yeah, no, I think for me, there's definitely like a really strong bent towards like sovereignty and like, I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to do this by myself. Um, a lot of that has come out of like a DIY necessity to like make some shit all by myself. Cause I don't, uh, like there was a long period of time where I was like, nobody's going to support me. You know, there's right. just this quality of like, I have to do this alone. And I think that's turning a new leaf in me. It's kind of just like, no, it, I'm ready to like have partnership in all of the ways. I'm ready to have partnership and like collaboration in my work. And it's definitely a necessary part of filmmaking. Like it is collaboration. Right. Um, but it's also like choosing that collaboration really deliberately um, so that, again, the power dynamic isn't off. Like there are so many ways that I can easily just go to like people pleasing and then just like become this yes person to somebody else's vision. And then like, wait, I thought I was directing this. What the right. fuck just happened? Um, but the same is true for like long-term partnership. Like I'm ready to like, put my finances together with somebody else's finances and like, or like, you know, we each have our own finances, but we also have a joint account and we're like trying to build something together. Like I'm ready for that kind of, um, relationship and that kind of compromise. Um, however that is defined, you know, along masculine and feminine terminologies. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> can you, er, if you're willing and open, can you talk a little bit about your own gender identity and how that sort of shifted or in its own definition or understanding? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think since the podcast came out, I um, have come to an understanding of myself that I am definitely somewhere more along the femme non-binary spectrum. Mm. Um, while I do still identify as female, um, my gender also, I do identify strongly as non-binary. Um, and I feel like I'm a little bit of a quote unquote fair weather woman. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but it definitely came, um, out of this 
so I was living in Germany and I was going to German um, language courses. Um, and in the German language, um, only recently has there kind of been a they pronoun mm-hmm. in the language that has been introduced and largely only on like a um, academic level. Um, and in Germany, the kind of greater ideology is that the kind of, the, the, the bureaucracy will deal with it first. So the state will kind of come up with the rules and then we will follow the rules as citizens, which is the opposite of American ideology, which is like the one underdog is going to come through and they're going to change everything. Right. Right. Um, so in German, I would consistently, and in German class, but also with like my German friends, I would consistently kind of question or fight for this existence of um, a non-binary option, Hmm. Um, which in German is, I think it's the same in French. It's like he, she is the, is the they pronoun, as he, which also I have a lot of problems with, but if that's kind of the main thing that's going to be accepted in that language, like it's better than nothing. Right. Um, there was also this thing where all of the endings in on nouns have a female or masculine or female or male ending. Hmm. So they started to create a little asterisk. Um, so say you're talking about like, um, Regisseur, regisseur, and regisseur, and then with a little asterisk in there. And then articles started coming out about like the asterisk people. Um, it just seems like such a weird way to create space to me. And so that inside of me created all of this conflict around, um, the kind of space that I want to occupy, um, inside of a certain type of gender. And it definitely like then created this coming out with my mom where I was like, Hey, actually, can you refer to me as, um, like I'm still fine being called her daughter, but I would also not mind being called her child. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I just want the option of it not being gendered. Um, and so I find myself continually kind of asking for that option in terminology. But if I'm at a restaurant and somebody's like, here you go, ma'am. Like, um, I was with somebody who is non-binary and got mammed at a restaurant and they were like, you don't have to ma'am me. And it just seems so simple. They were just like, oh yeah, you don't have to do that. Um, they didn't seem like put off by it or like, um, it wasn't like emotional for them but I like longed to be at a place where I was willing to take up that amount of space and just be like, Oh yeah, you don't have to ma'am me. I also am a person who still like gets off on being called sir. Cause I have <laughs> short hair. Um, I love it when somebody's like, sir, and they turn around. Like, oh dear. Yeah. Ma'am, pardon me. It's like, Oh, <laughs> you just, you got it wrong twice. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great um what do you feel like I what do you feel like around like I had someone on the podcast recently she's a transgender woman um an older and we talked a lot about like she actually she said that 
she actually felt like part of her transition was confirming a gender binary binary, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting. And like, was, I was grateful for her to sort of bring that up because I think there is a lot of kind of like fear and taboo around, uh, looking at like the nuance of our identity and mm-hmm. how that's constructed in a cultural sense. Um, <clears throat> and I'm curious, cause you're talking a lot about like other cultures and countries as well. Like how much of this is steeped in our own culture and society's view and like looking at these things cross-culturally is fascinating to me. Um, well, I think uh, in the United States, we are such a mecca of culture. Um, I would say North America, but I honestly do believe it's just like the U.S. Um, I think it's changed a little bit with like massive production companies existing in other places. But for the longest mm-hmm. time, the U.S. was creating like the hippest music. And like it has to do with the, also the way that historically radio stations took over. And we're like broadcast everywhere. Um, the films of the U.S. are still played all over internationally. So there's this way that we're imperialists of culture. Um, and so I think there is a way that our, yeah. Okay, okay great. That was weird. Cool. Love <laughs> <Bump> technology. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so in regards to like the ways that U.S. politics and the conversation, especially around gender and race, um, that's happening in the U.S. right now, um, and especially like in media, mm-hmm. um, the ways that that is playing out. I think the whole world is kind of watching, or at least the people who have access to any kind of U.S. media, people are seeing that, and it's um, speeding up the conversation in other places. But I would be consistently told by my German friends that, like, Germany is not where the U.S. is. Like, uh, you know, we we are, like, five to ten years behind in that conversation. To which I said, are you? Because it sounds like we're having that conversation right now. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah, I had someone on the podcast. She's a lawyer, and she um, has multiple companies and organizations and law firms. But she... Uh, fights for sort of equal rights for non-traditional families. So like three people or people just like co-parenting and um, she works internationally. And it was interesting to hear her talk about like what women, for example, are fighting for in the U S versus in other countries that Mm -hmm. here it's all like, like we were saying before about this sort of like, I'm going to go out and have a job and I want to, you know, equal pay and be supported. And that like women in these other cultures are often like, no, can we like get rights for us to just like be stay at home moms, which I feel like is like a very taboo thing in America now. Like we need to like have a career and all this stuff. Um, Hmm, I disagree. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I think we're fighting for the right for anybody to choose to do what they can. But I think a lot of that also has to do with economic availability for like maternity leave or, You know, but I think, I think part of feminism is also fighting for the option to be a fucking stay at home parent. Why not? Yeah. Well, no. And, and I agree. I think the distinction I was trying to make, I guess, is that like, there was this, uh, distinguishing difference where 
like these women that she was working with internationally were like disagreeing with a lot of the rhetoric uh, of feminism in America, which they thought was again, like very sort of like anti male. Mm -hmm. Um, So that they were sort of like, no, like we want equal rights, but we really believe in like this, whether it's a binary or like this distinction about feminine femininity and masculinity. And we want to make sure that femininity and those characteristics are as equally valued as masculine ones um yeah yeah just in regards to like free time between like well we'll just say men and women um internationally it's like men experience so much more free time yeah um yeah but we're also i don't know it's always hard for me to get my head around the fact that like being gay is illegal in what fucking like at least 20, 60 countries. Um, Female genital mutilation still fucking exists. It's it's difficult to grasp onto that when you're like a feminist living in the U.S. Totally. Yeah, I was just talking yesterday about Morocco and how it was always somewhere I wanted to go, but I'd heard like one too many stories of people being like groped on subways consistently. And it's Mm. like to not even be able to or want to go to a place because of the way that women are treated, especially when traveling alone. Um, Like I want to be able to just say like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go and I'm fine. But it's like, that's completely (laughs) irresponsible. And just the risk of yeah, bodily violence. Um, I mean, it exists in Morocco, but it exists right here. You know, I can be groped in the subway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about public and private because yeah. <laughs> um, I'm super into the fact that you're into that. And it's a very like strange topic to bring up to someone that like doesn't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so I, I maybe just like hear your thoughts about that and either how it's expressed in your like art and creativity or just like what you think about, about these concepts of like private and public realms yeah um so i think initially the concept of the public sphere and the private sphere was introduced to me when i was still a little baby queer um in college and i um was in a women's history class um modern american women's history um and we were talking about public sphere and private sphere, uh, for example, the bar, uh, the bar is a public sphere. Um, politics are a public sphere. Um, being on the street and being able to speak, uh, is a public sphere or being able to own a house is, um, the owning of it. And like the process of being able to own that house is a public sphere. Um, versus, um, domestic, items are like a private sphere. Um, so anything having to do with fucking ironing and the laundry and I mean, it's private cause nobody sees you do it. Nobody gives you credit for it. Um, what else is a private sphere? Child labor, like give, or not child labor, but giving birth and taking care of children. Yeah. Um, like grooming. A, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Grooming. Absolutely. A <laughs> private sphere. Yeah. Makeup. Private sphere. Yeah. 
shitting, um, even though it's private yeah, sphere. Private sphere fully. <laughs> I mean, unless you're shitting in public, in which case, you know, then we're getting yeah. the conflation of like the public and the private. And I yeah. think there is something super interesting in that, in that <laughs> like overlapping of that Venn diagram. Yeah. Um, and I think there is also something to be said about like the dominant aspects of like gay and lesbian culture existing inside of public and private spheres um, and the gendered qualities of that. Um, for example, there is this like, it is more common to have a gay club be all like cis white men for the most part. Um wanting to like cruise and fuck each other. And it is more common that like lesbians as a stereotype are like perpetually together with each other, like eating food at home, um, which yeah. sounds rad to me. Um, <laughs> so I think there is this quality in which like the public and private spheres continue to play out. Um, but I think, um, the thing that's super interesting to me is often around like technology. So say it's this phone. If I were on the street having this conversation with you, I'm both like in a private sphere, you and I are having this conversation and then I'm in a public sphere, like on the street. So like there's this quality of voyeurism or possibly like exhibitionism. If I'm having an argument and I'm aware of the fact that I'm having an argument in public or it's like the way that couples go and like fight at restaurants. <laughs> um, you know, there's like mm -hmm. this quality of bringing the public or bringing the private into the public. Um, and I think there's also a way that we're bringing the public into the private, with like the fucking internet, you know, or the access to, being anywhere but here so I can watch a TV show or I can communicate with somebody thousands of miles away. Podcasts. Podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, I'm sitting in my car, I'm listening to a podcast. Um, I don't have to focus on the boring commute. Right. And what does that do to our ideas of kind of public and private? What does it do to the idea of like place and time? I don't know. I think it's a really interesting way that our lives have changed. And I don't know what like the cumulative effect of that might be. Yeah. Let's talk about in terms of sex. And then I guess even more specifically, like the type of sex we're referring to. I always, especially having a podcast, I talked to your mom a bit about this too, because a lot of her book was like very personal, but also a lot about sex. Um, and I struggle sometimes with like, uh, I mean, I don't really mind exhibitionism per se, but uh, if any of it's sort of like egoic, <laughs> then I guess it's problematic. But it, in having a podcast, like my, my inclination is to just say everything and anything, which is really hard because a lot of that stuff, especially when related to sex is related to other people. Um, and I also don't want to like freak anyone out necessarily. Like I want people to... <laughs> I want people to like, I think about it in terms of like when you're, you have a friend or something and they're 
like in a shitty relationship or just like struggling with something and haven't really had gotten to a place of self-awareness yet. Like you don't yell at them and say like, wake up, like get out of the relationship. Like you're making a mistake. There's no way that they can do that. Like they have to come to that. You have to support them where they're at and they have to come to that themselves. And so I think about that with a podcast. Like I want people to like feel free and explore. So I don't want to like shout at them about (laughs) how they should be or the way they should live their lives necessarily. Um, but I also want to be like open and I don't want to be like, I know what it feels like to be closeted. There's like so many closets when it comes to sex, whether that's, you know, homosexuality or non-monogamy or just queerness in general. Uh, and like, I think I posed this in the email that I sent you and I like to talk about it. Like, where's the intersection between privacy and shame? Like, because I think privacy is so socially constructed. Um, Mm. And like, when we think back to like hunter gatherer societies, like there wasn't privacy, like there is now. You know, there was the tent though. Like, yeah, but a lot of them were shared. Like people like, Oh, there are those people fucking over there. (laughs) Like it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the same type of, I, the reason I got into this, I took a class in college called both public and private, the social construction of family life. Um, and it talks a lot about like the nuclear family and agriculture, how like we insulated, um, and owned and owned. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like, it's interesting now that we have all this different technology where we didn't before it's like my same inclination to like fuck in public, (laughs) right? Like, how does that apply when it like, it really is public and like thousands of people are watching. It's not just like me in a tent with my tribe right um yeah so the question is kind of like what um what do we do to maintain privacy without shame or like is shame the only way that privacy was constructed yeah or like i mean i watched your film is this okay Mm -hmm. i think it was called Yeah. yeah yeah Um, which was awesome. And and I guess, you know, there are these different levels because I think obviously culture and society and depending on where you are and who you are, accepts different forms and levels of public displays of affection or sex. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess the question is around like, um, or, or just what you're exploring with that. Like what, do you feel in that sense? Like I struggle with sort of often not knowing where my desire to be totally open and honest comes from, whether it's to try and reduce shame or whether it's to like make myself feel better about something I'm not super confident in. Mm. Um, Like, like for example, like people posting about their like relationships on social media, right. With like long winded, soliloquies about how much they love the person um it's like how much of that is just like being honest and how much of it is uh overcompensating for sure nothing gets me to unfollow you faster (laughs) as when you're just like waxing poetic about your flavor of the week i can't with you um 
So just a little context about my short film, Is This Okay? Um, it is a story of like a queer romance that starts out in a bathroom and then um, the couple moves out onto the street where they're still like affectionate and kissing each other. Um, and then a drunk dude walks by and yells in their ear. Um, and the kind of more butch character, um, like needs a moment to reflect on that. Um, and that's the entirety of the film, but it's more or less dealing with like the kind of street harassment that a queer couple has to deal with that maybe a straight couple doesn't, um, deal with as often. Um, and in regards to what I'm trying to say with that film, um, I think even in the title, is this okay? There's a quality of like, do you, do you think, uh, do you think this kind of relationship is okay? Do you think it's okay that this person is yelling at these people on the street? Um, there's also consent culture, like when they're making out in the bathroom, um, kind of the butch Dom character is asking the femme character, like, is this okay that I'm licking your neck and kissing your, you know, chest. Um, so I think, uh, I think that is a little bit of context about that film and what I'm trying to say there. Um, I think there was a little bit of backlash both at the festival that it, uh, not backlash. Um, some, some people brought up questions of like, I don't understand how, um, this kind of disconnect can come from like such a small action. Cause the person really just like, blah, in their ear. It's like, not like, you fucking queers, you fucking, you should die in hell. Um, it's very minimal. Um, and that is to draw out the fact that this kind of thing is cumulative, but it's not given inside of the story that cumulative narrative. It's just something that as a queer person, you know that that kind of street harassment is cumulative. Um, and so I think that is something that becomes part of the dialogue that the film creates is like, is that a big deal? Cause people like to treat it like it's a no big deal kind of action on the street, but I don't know. I, I think it's fucked up. So I made a film about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, I like that it wasn't super specific because I think, yeah, it speaks to the cumulative effect, but I think it also speaks to, like, unfortunately, where we go with that, like, where we're able to take a sort of vague reaction and run with it in either or any direction, you know, yeah. like what that means and how much of that is my own shit. And, uh, and how fucking naturally empowered this, like, cis white dude walking down the street like assumedly sis, I guess, um, can just be like, Oh, you know what I need to do is interject myself into this situation. Like why, why do you even feel the right to do that? And what, and what would stop you if it were a different like constellation of people? Like if it were like a big burly motherfucker, kissing like would you feel like you could go and be like Bleh. would you choose to do that even as like an inebriated inhibited 
in an uninhibited person? I don't know. Which kind of gets into the whole power thing too. Yeah. I mean, which is an endless conversation. Um, but I, I think a lot of, like, I think in public realms, in culture mm-hmm. and in society, like mm, cis whiteness holds power. But I think a lot of the like misogyny, homophobia, just blaying <laughs> comes from fear. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. of what I think is like female sexuality is super fucking powerful. Like, I don't think half of the reason, like, I think so much of the reason we have the inequality is because cis whiteness is afraid of that. And Mm. because they're like physically, culturally more powerful because masculinity is, I think after, especially after agriculture become more valuable that it was like easier to, relegate you know feminists into lower levels of power um and i wonder like what is the reaction you know like obviously safety is an issue to differing levels depending on where you are um but it's like that that moment that you capture in your film like to think about what the reaction is like what do you do (laughs) you know like yeah um for the record, for anybody who hasn't seen the film, which is most of you, because, hi, um, <laughs> the, the reaction is more or less nothing. It's more or less right. just like uh, there's the fight, flight, or freeze response. The response is freeze. Yeah. 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 I, I, I always, it's like, I feel like it's a catch-22 because it's like, on the one hand, I mean, I guess for me, I feel like I'm in a very privileged position in many ways. Um, and I think that's partially why, like on this podcast, I like to, or want to talk as openly as possible about sex and gender and race and whatever I can sort of get my hands on to expose and share because I have the privilege to do so. And I don't want to, because I don't have to hide, um, yeah, I think that gets into the whole public-private thing again, too. But anyway, now I'm just... And also, <laughs> like, what is fearlessness? Like, can we choose yeah. to be fearless despite the fact that we may right. um, get either shamed or bullied or um, killed, you know? Can we still choose yeah. to be fearless? Or can we still choose to be angry or to fight against the thing that oppresses us. And I say that with all the white privilege in the world. Yeah. 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 I, I think at one point I said something like, if there was one thing I was like willing to go to the grave for, it would be like defending my right to be myself and do like what I felt like I wanted to do. And the person I was talking to was like, well, I don't, you know, if what you want to do is like, walk naked down the street and someone like kills you for that. Like, is that really a righteous cause? Um, and it was interesting. Like I, I'm still sort of struggling with that. Like how much, you know, how much does, I guess my one voice and action make a difference? Um, or and, like, would you have to become a martyr? Well, right. Exactly. Like, yeah. Having walked down the street naked and been killed. I don't know. Like, 
Right. To what extent can you be a part of a movement? Um, I think that's where collaboration as an artist or partnership or, um, you know, being an activist as a part of a group of people that are actively fighting something. I think that's where power in numbers comes in handy, not in handy, but like becomes an inherent part of the movement. So walk down the street naked with five other people. That'll be good. Yeah. Or 500 <laughs> other people. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this was awesome. I could probably keep going, but, uh, <laughs> Likewise. yeah. Um, so the last two questions I have are one, where can people find you, like find more about your work? And then I always ask everyone if they could recommend one book to the Ooh. listeners. What might that be? Um, I am at www.dylanbandy.com. Uh, B is in boy, A N is in Nancy, D Y is my last name. Uh, Dylan is in Bob Dylan, D Y L A N. Um, and the book, um, if you want a nonfiction read that it will question your relationship with your parents and maybe anything that you deem uh, love to be all about love by bell hooks. If you want a fiction, like, you know, the apocalypse is filled with bureaucracy and monotony. Um, then severance by, uh, I think Ling Ma. Oh, what is her name? I don't remember her name. Severance. I'll, I'll look it up and make sure I write it. Please do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool. Thank cool. you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was really fun. Thanks for taking the time. Next time we'll talk more about sex. Always. Always <laughs> talk more about sex. Yeah. We'll have to do a part two. Please. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to play you out with a song today called Morning in America, which I think plays off of a lot of the themes that uh, Dylan and I talked about on the show and was a song that my dear, best, wonderful, epic friend Aaron told me about. Um I was going to totally talk about this in the intro, but I forgot because there's too much to say. Um, but as a reminder, Aaron and I are starting another podcast. It's going to be called Whore Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, and we're planning on launching it at the end of October. Um, we recorded an episode a while back sometime during the summer called Welcome to the Horientation. Uh, if you couldn't figure it out, clearly we like to play with the word whore. Um, it's just so fun to say whore. You guys should say it right now. It's fun. Anyway, um, we are launching that podcast at the end of October and, um, I'm really excited. We have an Instagram account. So if you want to follow that, please do. Um, and go listen to that episode because it really introduces the topics that we're going to be discussing. Um, it's just going to be the two of us, at least at the beginning. We're going to pick different topics, like similar to the ones that uh, Dylan and I spoke about on this show. Um, but power and feminism and non-monogamy and rape and abortion and um, all sorts of shit. And we're just going to pick one topic and have a discussion, just the two of us. Um 
And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun and it's going to be definitely different from uh, a lot of the other sex podcasts out there uh, in ways that are hard to describe, but that you will definitely pick up on when you listen to the show. Um, So follow us on Instagram if you'd like to get updates on that, but I'll be updating you frequently on this podcast as well. Um, Anyway, Aaron's Uh, has really fucking good taste in music and this was a song that she introduced me to and uh, i'm gonna play it for you uh did i say what it was i don't remember (laughs) it's called morning in america and it's by duran jones and the indications and i hope you enjoy it uh talk to you all next week promise it'll be next week not next month next week (laughs) bye
and I can't 